Have you ever heard of BTK, the Carr Brothers Massacre, the Clutter Family, or the Poet? These are just a few well-known crimes in Kansas, but there are so many more that have been forgotten. Like my friend and neighbor, Krista Martin, who was murdered on October 1st of 1989, and so many more cases that are still sitting on the shelves waiting to be solved. Hopefully, with your help, we will be able to find the answers to these cases. Join us again at Crime Scene and Cupcakes on your streaming devices, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. Hello, crime family. Welcome back. This is the True Crime B&B with me, Bailey. And me, Beth. Woohoo! And today is week 36. <laughs> yes, it is. So, I don't really have anything to update. Then we'll just get right to it this week. Okay. And I have a rather short case today. I'm going to tell you about the disappearance of Sandra Lynn Johnson Hughes. Name does not ring a bell. Not yet. She was born July 26, 1966, so just a couple days older than you. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Old lady. Yeah, I know. Crotchety. <laughs> <laughs> she really loved the outdoors, and as a young adult, it said, depending on where you look, either in high school or in college, she went on and became a park ranger. Okay. And I believe she's from California, because that's where she spent most of her life, but that wasn't ever clarified. All right. So she would go out into all the parks, there's tons of them in California, and she would spend days and days, and she was very good at survival skills. She was really good at just being independent and that kind of thing. And so this became her hobby and then her career. She eventually ended up moving out to Maui, which is another playground for an outdoor lover, I can imagine. For sure. In a different way, but yes. Yes. And she loved that for a couple of months until 2020 when the COVID pandemic hit. And at that point, she decided to move back to the mainland, California, and she took all of her stuff and decided to go out into the forest and quarantine herself, essentially, on a solo trip. Mm -hmm. So she decided to go out to the Sierra National Forest, more specifically, a place called Johnson Meadows in that forest. And before she was unpacking her car and getting all of her gear ready to go hiking, and she called her family on June 26, 2020, telling them her plans, where she plans to go. And then she says, well, right now where I'm parked, Yosemite is about a 10-mile hike away, so up to the north. So she said, I'm planning to go kind of south and around and back here, and I might end up going to Yosemite, so don't get worried if I'm a little bit out of contact with you for a little bit. Okay, because she's just kind of winging it. She's just winging it and kind of planned for it to be at least two weeks. All right. I will show you a map later. The total area of her hike would be about a six-hour car ride, so it is a long-ass hike, but for two weeks with a person who does this all the time, it's not undoable. Right. She's the kind of person who would hike the Appalachian Trail. Exactly. By herself, better yet. Yeah. Right. That was on June 26th when she got in contact with her family, said, hey, I'm leaving right now. Don't expect me back for a couple weeks. Okay. On July 2nd, a group of hikers stumbled upon some camping supplies in the area where she had been planning to set up her first camp. They didn't really specify what these items were, but they kind of sounded like it wasn't anything too concerning. Maybe like a flashlight that could have fallen out of backpack and then a couple steps later they found, I don't know, a matchbook, that kind of thing. Right, so there's evidence that a person was here, but they don't really have any reason to be concerned Maybe they forgot to zip up their backpack and a bunch of stuff just fell out as they walked. Right. 
So they called and reported a lot of these things missing, just in case. They called the park rangers and said, hey, we found this stuff. I don't know if anybody's in trouble or anything like that. I just wanted it to be known that we found it in this location. Right. In case anybody is reported missing, this yes. is where they might and be. And in these national parks, very likely that they probably could be missing or something. I don't know. Yeah. They're so huge. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the order of her last known steps. Okay. So it's in chronological order, but it's not necessarily in the order it came in as a report. Another group of hikers reported that on July 4th, they had come across a woman who looked just like Sandra, but they hadn't known who she was at the time because they didn't know she was missing until they got back to town a couple weeks later. Okay, that makes sense. And they definitely knew it was her, and this interaction stuck out quite a bit to them because she was completely on her own, which is not unusual, but she was also barefoot, didn't have a lot of supplies on her, and had a huge bruise just on the side of her face. Oh, wow. They're immediately like, do you need help? We can radio somebody to come out and get you some assistance if you need. And she said, no, I'm fine. Just assured them she would be okay. Who needs shoes? Who needs shoes in in the the national forest? Yeah. Jeez. They just kept going, and then they eventually got back. Can you imagine that being like, okay, like, and then going back to town, seeing her face? Well, I mean, if she seemed like she was coherent. Yeah, they totally thought she was. capable of doing her own thing. I mean, as far as they know, she might have a camp that's 50 yards away that they just don't see. And one thing I will say, it was never mentioned in any of the articles, but all the pic, well, not all, but a lot of the pictures I have of Sandra that I found in my search, I noted she is barefoot in a lot of them. She's mm-hmm. outdoors, just either in her backyard barefoot. So maybe she was swimming in the creek or wanted to, yeah. and just tripped, fell and hit her head. Who knows? My generation ran around barefoot a lot. I still do. So that was on July 4th. On July 5th, an entire campsite of hers was found abandoned and reported to the rangers once again. At first, it's like, okay, somebody might have walked away from their campsite and gone away for a day and then come back to it. But then they noticed things were just scattered around. Bags of supplies had been opened, just torn apart, thrown around the campsite. And then they also found her personal belongings, her forms of identification, just scattered It sounds like a bear went through her camp. Maybe. That's totally possible. But there wasn't any signs of bears. There wasn't any scratches in the tent. We don't know. Also, on July 5th, they came across Sandra's car because after they found the campsite and found her identification, they called her family and said, hey, have you heard from her recently? And they said, no, but we weren't expecting to, so it's fine. And then they said, well, just in case, is there anything else you want us to look out for? And they said, yeah, well, she drives a Saab that's silver. So if you find that, then get concerned because then we'll be worried. Later that evening, about 6.30, they did find her Saab, which had seemingly, it was on a dirt road. It had seemingly swerved a little bit, hit a tree, and then rolled into a ravine. But the weird thing is, based on the dent in the front of the car, she couldn't have been going faster than 20 miles per hour when she hit that. And the ravine wasn't deep, it's just she got stuck on some tree stumps. Yeah. So she couldn't get it back out, is what it looks like. It doesn't seem like an accident that would incapacitate you or hurt you in any way. You'd maybe be a little shaken up. I have a theory. What? Her car got ditched. You think so? That's what it sounds like. By her or by somebody who did something possibly to her? Maybe somebody who did something to her. I didn't even think about that, honestly. They won't even know to look for her here if they don't see her car. Mm Mm-hmm. True. They did find her car, and they decided, we're not going to go ahead and immediately take the car and tow it out of here. We're going to go ahead and leave it here in case she did happen to crash it and then is in need of a shelter later on and comes back to it. That makes sense. So instead, what they did was they left a um, warning sticker 
it says warning on it, but it wasn't really a warning. It was just, hey, we, we got a call your from your family. We <laughs> found your campsite, everything. Well, I can't believe that her family wouldn't have been concerned that her IDs and stuff were all just thrown around on the ground. Well, they kind of were. That's why they were like, oh, we weren't expecting her to be back for... And then they realized the state of the campsite where she had last been mm-hmm. and said, okay, well, here's some information on her and some pictures in case something comes up. Okay. So at this point, they are worried. So, so they weren't just being like, hey, whatever, man. Just let her yeah, be. Yeah, no, they were like... Let her do her thing. <laughs> they said, hmm, weird. Doesn't sound like Sandra. We're a little bit on edge now, but... Yeah. Yeah. They left a note on the window of the car saying, call this number, and then they just checked off a box at the bottom that says, your family is worried about you, so please, if you can get in contact with us as soon as possible, that'd be awesome. And they never heard from her. After that, both aerial and canine searches were conducted throughout the entire area between the campsite and where her car had been found, which is a pretty large area. However, these searches came back with nothing. That's not super shocking. It's really dense forest area there and a lot of rough terrain. (laughs) Yeah, it would be really hard to find someone who wasn't just moving around normally. Mm -hmm. And This park where she was was 1.3 million acres. Not to mention if she wandered into Yosemite at some point. That's not even. Who knows? Inconceivable. Yes, that's the word. Thank you. It's inconceivably huge to be out on foot. Yes. So finally, on August 9th, 2020, two hunters thought that they possibly had seen Sandra. And this is another case where they saw her on August 9th, but then they got back to town, saw her missing poster, and said, oh, we saw that woman. Okay. And told the police about it later. But they said on August 9th, they had seen her leaning up against a tree near a creek where it was close to where her car was found. Kind of seemed like... She had gone down here, set up camp, taken her car up here. Somebody ditched it. She ditched it. We don't know. Crashed it. And then they saw her over a month later still in that area. Okay. And she didn't seem distressed, but they did note that she was super malnourished looking, like way skinnier than any of the photos of her. Well, it sounds like it was probably her then. Well, that totally makes sense if she's super thin now after being out there with no supplies, barefoot. But if you're out there and if you are starving... Mm-hmm. And you see people, why would you not ask them for help unless it's a pride thing? Like, I told everybody I could do this on my own, and mm-hmm. I don't want to tell anyone I can't. Well, it also could be like a mental health thing. It could be I'm hallucinating because I haven't eaten for two weeks. That I could don't, be. I don't know. It could be. Or maybe she did have some sort of mental health condition that mm-hmm. nobody is aware of. Yeah, and I tried to look into that. They, the family did say she's never had any incident like this, but, I mean, people snap all the time. People something traumatic happens and then you don't know what's going on the all pandemic the did a lot of crazy things to people yeah if anybody lost their mind that was definitely a time to do it so and then since then there has been no updates in her case we haven't seen her since and the only spotting and i do that in air quotations because you know how both of us feel about paranormal situations yes well apparently- We're a little bit skeptical a sketch sketch yeah <laughs> There was a sighting by a three-year-old child near the point where her car had been found, and the family was just out at like an overlook point over the meadow where she last was. And apparently the three-year-old looked down into that area and said to his parents, I see a lady down there with blue hair laying face down with her legs straight in the air. Laying face down with your legs straight in the air? And I'll kind of address that. All right. And then he said, she's dead, but she needs our help. Yikes. At the time, Sandy had had blue dyed hair, 
and it was just a recent thing, so they only had one or two pictures of her with the blue hair. So it was kind of strange, and it was very specific, I will give them that. But also at the same time, her family did have missing posters in the area with her blue hair, and I wouldn't say it's completely inconceivable to say that child saw the missing person poster at some point, stuck it out in his head that, oh, that lady had blue hair, and went out and made up a story. I wouldn't. I just don't know why a three-year-old would come up with she was laying on her on her stomach face down with her legs straight up in the air because that means your back is snapped. Well, a <laughs> lot of people That's really said, just giving me the willies even thinking of that image. Well, of, of the major theory with people who believe this story and the paranormal aspect to it is they think she might have been dismembered of some kind if something had happened, but so, I think that's almost kind of a stretch because what three-year-old is like, I saw a dismembered lady out in the woods. <laughs> like, oh. Well, did the parents look down there and just not see anything? They didn't see anything. And they, the police actually did take it seriously and went out there to exactly where he was pointing and tried to do canine cadaver searches and everything. And they never came up with anything. And also, is it normal at the age of three to have a clear concept of a person being dead? I guess it depends on what your three-year-old's been through. That's true. But I just wonder, why would a three-year-old come up with that unless it was something that they had recently talked about? You know, maybe their dog had died Mm -hmm. or a grandma or somebody had passed away and they... See, that's hard for me to answer because I don't really have a lot of experience with three-year-olds except for my brother, but he's demented, so... Um, (laughs) I do see what you're saying, though, because I remember when he was about that age, a three-year-old stories they make up, they do make up really... Freaking weird stories, I will say. But they're usually not that dark. Yeah, like I remember he woke up screaming one night and I was in the room next to him. So I went and comforted him. I was like, what? What's wrong? And he goes, I had a nightmare. I said, what was your nightmare, honey? And he said, there's a whale under the trampoline. And I said, I don't understand why that's even scary. (laughs) Like, so I, I see what you're saying. Why would you be like, there's a dead lady down there. It looks just like the lady I saw. Yeah, exactly. And she's dismembered and she's dead but needs our help. I just, I don't know. It's a little weird. I'm not going to say it didn't happen. And and you know I'm the biggest skeptic around. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't believe in spirits really at all. Mm -hmm. I just, but that's a weird story coming from a three-year-old if the three-year-old really conceived of it himself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Or even if he had just seen something and then the parents couldn't find it. There's probably so many areas that if you don't look exactly at the right spot in that area, then... Or it could be like the Amityville Horror where, you know, the parents are like, hey, if you tell this story, we'll get famous. Yeah, a lot of people on YouTube said that too. Oh, really? Saying, oh, you know they just wanted to get Facebook famous with this and then were surprised and had to back up their story with the three-year-old once the police contacted them. (laughs) So I don't know what I think about that either, but yeah. But it, I mean, it's worth considering if it needs to be investigated, and it sounds like they did. So yeah, honestly, if they had found something, I'd be like, yeah, that child saw a ghost. But since they didn't, I'm just kind of like, all right, yeah, it is what it is. That's it's all one, I got today. It's one dark little three-year-old. Though. All right. Well, what do you got for me today? Before I do my story, I want to acknowledge another podcast. I've had Verna Sue White on my subject list for a while now. But I was listening to Southern Girl Crime Stories last week, and I always do because I just love her. Mm-hmm. And she did some good coverage of this story, and it kind of reminded me, you know what, I've done some of this research, I'm just going to go back, and mm-hmm. it kind of nudged me to get back to revisiting the case. So thank you, Southern Girl Crime Stories. Awesome. I appreciate the nudge. Verna Sue White lived near Ball Ground in the northern portion of Cherokee County, Georgia. 
Her home was pretty isolated, as it's a rural area and neighbors were few and far between. She was a 38-year-old, divorced, single mom of three children. She had left her ex when he began physically hitting her, and she was not going to live like that, nor let her children grow up witnessing the abuse or the drug use that typically preceded it. Mm. She was working at a hairdresser's, and she and her children finally had a happy home of their own, they were building a good life, just the four of them. Her oldest daughter was 18, her son was 17, and her youngest daughter was 6. And I did find their names, but I'm not going to use them in the story because it's not necessary. I'm with it. November the 5th, 2006, Verna Sue's 17-year-old son had dropped her and the youngest child off at home. She had gotten the little girl settled in, designing a -a Build-A-Bear on the computer, and then she sat down to relax on her couch with a glass of wine. After a long, hard day, just sitting down to chill a little bit for the evening. Mm -hmm. As the daughter asked her mom to come over and see what she had designed, they were both startled to hear the front door glass shatter. As Verna Sue ran over to find out what was happening, a hand reached through and unlocked the door. The door swung open and in burst a man wearing a ski mask and brandishing a shotgun. Oh, God. He pointed the gun at her, immediately began punching her in the face and beating her while her little daughter could only watch in horror. The attacker forced Verna Sue at gunpoint into the bedroom, forced her to undress, and sexually assaulted her. She began to fight back, which enraged the attacker. He picked up his gun and pointed it at her head, but he couldn't get it to fire. Frenzied, he began smashing her in the face with the butt of the weapon over and over and over. Mm. Verna Sue started to pretend to be dead or at least unconscious, hoping that the man would give up and leave the house, feeling like his job was done there. Yeah. But the man knew she wasn't dead or unconscious, and what he said next sealed the fates of all of them. He demanded that Verna Sue call to her daughter, who had run to hide upstairs, to come down so that he could assault the little girl, too. Oh, hell no. Yeah. When this threat came out, Verna knew her fight had only just begun. There was no way she was going to let this monster hurt her baby. The man left the room and went looking for the little girl, and he got distracted when he found Verna Sue's purse. As he rummaged through her purse to take anything that he could find, she took that opportunity and ran to her kitchen and grabbed a butcher knife. He came looking for her and came around the corner into the kitchen. As soon as he appeared around the corner, she quickly stabbed him twice in the chest. He somehow got control of the knife and stabbed her back. They fought savagely to best each other. For at least 20 minutes, they rolled around the kitchen floor, each fighting for their lives. She was stabbed again several more times, and so was he. Finally, he ran out the back door, and she followed and locked it behind him. Knowing he could be trying to trick her, she immediately ran to the open front door and locked it, too. She had been right, and he did try to get in the front door, and when he couldn't get in, he just broke out the front window and climbed through it into the house. So he originally got in there by busting the front window, right? There was a pane of glass in the front door. He busted that out, reached inside, unlocked the door. Oh, so it was like one of those weather... Yeah, I think it was like a storm door. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So when he came back around to the front, she had closed the main door, and then he broke out the front window and climbed into the house. Another round of fighting took place, both still trying to get control of the knife, and Verna Sue managed to stab him yet again. When he appeared to be slowing down, finally, she ran to check on her daughter. The little girl had grabbed their new puppy and locked herself in the upstairs bathroom, where Verna Sue told her to stay until it was safe. Then she returned downstairs again, and the man was trying to crawl out the front door, and then she called 911. When the police arrived, the man was a few feet from the front door, dead in the front yard, and the entire house was covered in blood. Verna Sue had been beaten, sexually assaulted, stabbed, 
Her hands were cut to ribbons with defensive wounds. She had been through a nightmare of two physical, really lengthy physical, heavy battles with this man. And as she was airlifted to the hospital, now she had to mentally reckon with the fact that this wasn't even a stranger. This man who had broken in, attacked her, threatened her little girl, and tried to kill her was someone she had gone to high school with. This man was Gerald Lee. She had known him 20 years earlier in high school and hadn't really been in touch since then. He had later married a friend of hers and then they divorced. He also was a drug buddy of Verna Sue's ex-husband. Gerald Lee had run into Verna Sue earlier that year when she was out with a girlfriend of hers and he happened to be at the same tavern. He told her he wasn't using drugs anymore. They chatted for a little while and then Verna Sue went home and didn't think much about him after that. A couple of months later, Gerald just randomly showed up outside of Verna Sue's workplace. She went outside to ask what he was doing and he told her things weren't going so great for him and asked her if she would be willing to let him talk to her about it. Well, they exchanged numbers as Verna Sue was a nice person and she was willing to help him through a hard time if she could. Well, that night he showed up at her house. After some innocent reminiscing about their high school days, Gerald came right out and told her that he wanted to be more than friends. She was happy being single and she told him no. He was her friend's ex-husband and he was a friend of her ex-husband and that wouldn't be comfortable to her. Mm -hmm. She wasn't interested in him that way. Verna Sue's oldest daughter had then walked through the room where they were talking and made some sort of a comment to her mom that Gerald interpreted as being rude. He flipped out and threatened to hit the daughter if she ever spoke to her mother that way again. Who the hell are you? Exactly. Verna Sue immediately told Gerald he needed to leave. And he did. There was no more confrontation about it. He just left. Verna Sue took this aggression as a sign that he actually was using drugs, even though he said he wasn't. Over the next few weeks, he blew up her phone, constantly sending messages about how they belonged together. She was perfect for him. They should be together. She consistently told him, no, she wasn't interested. And she especially wasn't interested after he had threatened her daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. He began driving to her home, banging on the door, and then leaving. It was classic stalker behavior, and it went on for weeks. And then November the 5th came along, and because of the methamphetamine that he was using, he became like an immortal, continuing to attack Verna Sue, despite the grave wounds that she had given him immediately when he first walked in the kitchen and she stabbed him in the chest. Mm -hmm. So now Gerald Lee was dead, but Verna Sue had quite a recovery ahead of her. She was taken by helicopter to Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta with injuries to her face and head from the butt of the gun, over 20 stab wounds, abrasions, cuts to her body, and terrible cuts to her hands. All of these wounds resulted in over 250 sutures. She had terrible, painful bruising, and of course, the sexual assault exam needed to be performed. Mm -hmm. After they took her to the hospital, her daughter had been brought downstairs and out of the house by a sheriff's deputy who shielded the little girl from seeing all the blood everywhere inside the house, the broken window, and the bloody knife by the front door. Good. I was wondering how they got her down there, because I can't imagine being a child and then just, like, blood everywhere. Right. Well, she knew that something terrible had happened, because Mm -hmm. she had seen the beginning of it, and then her mom had run up covered with blood. Yeah. So the little girl knew something terrible had happened, and they told her that her mom was alive, and so she willingly chose not to open her eyes. She just walked out with her eyes Mm -hmm. closed and didn't have to see the gore all over her home. Good. But now, authorities had her daughter in their care, and because they didn't understand how all of this had come to pass, they didn't want to give her back. In fact, the Department of Family and Children's Services took her daughter out of her care, claiming that she had brought this dangerous person into their lives. For the next month, Verna Sue healed, 
tried to begin working through the trauma of having been sexually assaulted, and also had to jump through a whole mountain of hoops with children's services trying to get her child returned to her. She was staying with an aunt during her recovery because she had a lot of physical wounds. Mm -hmm. And all the while, she was being grilled over and over by investigators. She had to undergo a psychological evaluation. She had to attend court hearings to claim her fitness as a custodial parent. Finally, on the 9th of December, she and her friends began to celebrate as it was ruled that Verna Sue was a fit parent and that her daughter would be returned to her care. On January the 28th, 2007, the kids came back to Verna Sue's house, moving into an apartment at a family violence center. Verna Sue later credited her daughter's presence with her survival. She said if her daughter hadn't been there and if Verna Sue hadn't felt that she needed to keep her daughter safe, she didn't think there was any way she could have found the strength and motivation to keep fighting as hard as she did. Oh, absolutely. That's like that super mom strength that comes out, like that mom that lifts the car off the kid, you know? Yeah, it's like, you will not hurt my child. You will have to kill me before you get to my child. And this case did get a lot of TV coverage at the time. It was featured in several series and podcasts, but it happened 16 years ago now. And I wanted to cover Verna Sue and her incredible story because it's a Georgia story. Mm -hmm. And I just find this woman's strength and resolve to be incredible. And I wanted to share it. Well, that's lovely. So that's Verna Sue White, amazing, badass warrior woman. Do you think it was the drugs that just, or did he have previous pedophilia behavior before that? Because what the fuck? I don't have any input into that. I don't know the answer to that. The thing that keeps going through my mind, though, is that he was so pissed at her because she wouldn't go out with him. She wouldn't date him. She Mm -hmm. wouldn't sleep with him. I think he was just trying to hurt her. Yeah, that's probably true. Just, I'm going to hurt you worse than hurting you. Exactly. I'm going to hurt your kid. Yeah, I get that. I don't get that, but you know what I mean. So I think that that might have had something to do with it, but Mm. it's not like he's here to ask. Unfortunately, I don't have anything else. Do you want to hear my pirate story? Okay, let's go for it. All right. Here we go. Here's my pirate story. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Hornigold was a pirate who lived from 1680 to 1719 during the end of what some people call the golden age of piracy. Mm -hmm. He captained several ships. He created a league of pirates, like a pirate union almost. And he managed to grow his fleet throughout the years. During this time, he was the mentor to Edward Teach, also known as Blackbeard. Oh. So this guy was a pretty heavy-duty pirate. He's the OG. Whom he made his second-in-command. And as the fleet grew larger, he gave Blackbeard his first command of a ship. Hornigold's ship, the Ranger, was one of the best armed ships in the West Indies trade routes, and his fleet had increased to five vessels and around 350 pirates. So they were nothing to be trifled with. Mm-hmm. They were a fearsome bunch, and they totally dominated marine traffic in the West Indies, although he refused to attack any ships under British flag so that the British would not interfere with their activities. Men on the vessels that were boarded by Hornigold's crews were certain to either be defeated and surrender, or they would be killed. So these pirates were universally respected and feared. So that makes this little anecdote amusing to me. Okay. In 1717, a sloop sailing off the coast of Honduras was approached and boarded by Hornigold's intimidating crew. They lumbered around on the deck, but rather than demand control of the ship, rather than kill or injure any of the crew, Rather than raid the cargo or steal valuables belonging to any of the men on board, Hornigold raised his voice to make his demands known. His deadly crew, he stated, had gotten very drunk the night before, and in celebratory fashion, they had thrown all of their hats overboard. Uh, Okay. (laughs) The pirates demand 
was that the sloop's crew surrender any and all hats that were on board the ship. So they scurried to find hats, any hats. Once the hats had been collected and turned over to the usually fierce pirates, having made no further injury to the sloop's crew, the pirates returned to their own ship and went happily on their way, wearing their new hats. And that's the story of Hornigold's pirate hat raid. I, I love that story. I I love it. I'm just wondering, was it a situation where it was like they're still a little bit drunk from the night before? They didn't want to get sunburned, I guess. Is there like another reason or a really important... They always wore hats. Haven't you ever seen pirate well, pictures? of course. Or bandanas <laughs> or whatever, but like... I didn't think about that. I wonder if they made them give them their bandanas too. I don't know. They probably could have made their own bandanas. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so that's my closing argument for the day. <laughs> Hornigold's hat raid. Thank you for being here today for episode 36. Mm-hmm. And we will be back next week for episode 37 as usual. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime B&B. And you can also email us at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. And if you're one of our new countries, we welcome you and we thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Well, we still welcome you and thank you for being here, even if you're one of our old countries. Especially if you're our OG countries, because we watch you. And that, that sounds really creepy. <laughs> I was looking today, and remember we've talked about how Belgium was one of the first dots we got? Brussels, yeah. Yes, Brussels and Belgium was one of the first dots, and they are still giving us listens and i just think that's so awesome and we thank you so much for that it's funny to me because they continue listening to us we know they've listened multiple times at least (laughs) and i know we've mentioned them before i said if you guys reach out to us we'll send you a sticker or something like that because (laughs) we love you guys and they still don't reach out they just silently want listening and we're just we want you to know we appreciate you so they're like look we really don't want to interact can you just bug off <laughs> it's actually it's secretly our fbi agent listening in to us and they just had to set okay. a different location for the ip address because we're that important that we need an fbi with the things i search absolutely i'm on a list yeah me too yeah me so too. all right thank you guys we love you and we are out bye bye Makes me sound like a whale. <laughs> it's my blowhole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going. We're recording now, so. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about the blowhole. Woohoo, okay. That's All right. It. That's for the Patreons now. <laughs> and to be trying to be fine. To be trying to be fine? No, that's not words. I just need to start doing a blog instead of a podcast because apparently I can't pronounce anything in the English language. Fuck <laughs> the spouse. And I just took over. <laughs> this mouse. <laughs> Much about him after that. Thanks, puss. I made it this far without crying and you come and scream. Yeah, but I don't really need a sexy teddy bear.